Superheroes have superpowers. In fact, to be a superhero, you need an ability that transcends, that exceeds natural limitations. For example, Superman, he's got x-ray vision, the capacity to fly. Spider-Man can spin a web and crawl up a wall. Flash has lightning speed, either to think or to move. Blade has an enhanced sense of smell. He smells what other people don't. The Silver Surfer, now there's a superhero for you. He can absorb energy. He even has this little piece of metal that he uses to sort of skim across the universe. The Wolverine has a healing factor, which means no matter the injury, just give him a little time and probably next week and he'll be back. And then Iron Man, he's got some abilities. He's immune to radiation. He can breathe underwater. He can even make himself invisible. Lately, my two-year-old grandson, Luke, has been running around his house in a red cape and in a Superman costume, pretending to be a superhero, but wishing does not a superhero make. You need a super ability. And here in the last half of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul tells his readers that as believers in Jesus, and thanks to the Holy Spirit, we too have a supernatural capacity. How else can you understand verse 16? It's incredible when you think about it. He tells us, we have the mind of Christ. In this morning's text, Paul talks about two types of people, the natural man and the spiritual man. Mr. Natural, well, he's just that. He's normal. He's human-born. He has simple intellectual powers and wisdom. I mean, not much to speak of like the normal person. He can see what's at the end of his nose. Well, sometimes. But Mr. or Miss Spiritual, this is the person who's been enlightened and instructed by God Himself through the Holy Spirit. He or she can tap into the deep things of God and become privy to supranatural wisdom. And as a result, it's the spiritual man or woman who truly lives a heroic life. Well, this morning we want to start where we left off last week, last time, chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul quotes Isaiah. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, this verse is often used to refer to the afterlife, to heaven. And it is true, Jesus is cooking up for us a heaven that's going to blow our minds and boggle our eyes and ears. I believe heaven's going to be a sensory experience unlike anything you've been exposed to on earth. Imagine the prettiest sunset, the bluest ocean, the autumn colors at their peak, snow-capped summits, Imagine all of that rolled up into one. I mean, compared to heaven, life on earth is like black and white TV. It's like AM radio. Compared to the high-def heaven that awaits us. In heaven, the colors will be richer. The sounds will be warmer. Everything will explode with brilliance. You can apply verse 9 to heaven. But I don't believe that was Paul's intent. 
In fact, rather than the afterlife, I believe Paul is speaking here of the here and now. That God has incredible blessings and power and wisdom stored up for us now. Heaven doesn't begin when you get there. It begins when you become a Christian. It begins now. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man. Our minds can't even imagine what God has prepared for the Christian in this current life. Yet this poses a problem. Since Paul has eliminated our normal portals for receiving input, our eyes and our ears and our minds, well, where are we going to receive the truths that God has for us, the blessings He has for us? I mean, spiritual blessings have no pixels, and so they're not discerned by ocular means. The Spirit of God doesn't speak or sing in frequencies that the human ear can grasp. God's ways can't be deciphered by the brightest intellect or even the most inquisitive imagination. So how are we made privy to the things of God? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 10. He says, but God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. Now, in our last three studies, we learned how that God works in paradoxical ways. He chooses the weak to display His strength. He uses the cross, what the world calls foolish, to baffle the wise. God places all His wisdom and power in what the wisest of this world consider foolish and feeble. Again, X marks the spot. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ that humans find the wisdom and the power of Almighty God. God has also revealed His wisdom and power in the makeup of the church. And even the methods of the courier, Paul himself, the gospel messenger there to Corinth. The church proves it's not about status. The courier shows it's not about skill. God fills his church with nobodies who become somebody in Christ. And he uses trembling and simplicity, not overwhelming oratory to win hearts. Paul came in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And thus, the cross. The church, the courier, they're all examples of God's power and wisdom and blessing. We go to the cross, we're part of the church, we model the courier, we know where to go, I know where it's at. God has revealed His power and His wisdom, but how do I now tap into that power? How, how do I draw out from that wisdom and really drink from the fountain of God's blessing. How do I do that? Well, here's the answer. Paul writes, For God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. When God transmits His power and wisdom and blessing to us, His method of conveyance isn't visual. It's not auditory. It's not even intellectual. It's spiritual. If you're expecting God to snatch you by the lapel and a giant finger fall from the sky to direct you where to go, stop looking. If you're anticipating an actual voice from heaven, you know, a deep baritone, sort of like James Earl Jones talking to you, hey, I'm sorry. Paul says that God doesn't convey His will to us through eye or through ear. 
And he doesn't even do it through our intellect. There's no degree you can obtain or course of study or intellectual exercise where you can boost your IQ and develop the smarts to know the deep things of God. It's not about seeing or hearing or learning. God's Spirit reveals these things to us. Of course, you might say, well, Pastor Sandy, what about reading this book? What about reading the Bible? Doesn't God speak to us through the Bible? And the answer is yes, yes, a thousand times yes. But though the Bible is called the Word of God, it was never meant to be approached without the Spirit of God. Jesus said this in John 14, verse 26. He said, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. John says the same in his first epistle. The things of God, even the Bible, can't be grasped by the human mind alone. They're spiritually discerned. It's the Spirit who searches, who digs out, and who brings up, and who shines on the deep things of God. The Bible involved the Holy Spirit's intervention on both ends. As it was written, holy men were moved by the Holy Spirit. And as it's read, The same Spirit who wrote the Bible helps us grasp its radical intent. You know, all we'd have to do is visit a seminary somewhere to find a professor who knows this book academically but has never experienced it spiritually, who's never been awed by God's presence and tasted firsthand of God's grace and mercy. The deep things of God have yet to make it the 18 inches from his head down to his heart. This is why having an intellectual knowledge of the Bible and knowing it experientially are apples and oranges. In Matthew 15, Jesus said this about the Pharisees. He said, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The religious leaders had mouthed all the right words, but they were a stranger to the spiritual realities. God never intended for His blessings and His truth to be conveyed the way we might teach someone math theorems, or multiplication tables, or the rules of grammar, or baseball statistics. No, God sees to it that the deep things of God are communicated spiritually. Author Philip Yancey, he notes how that many of the animals have senses that enable them to interact with the world around them in ways that we as humans can't. For example, bats use sonar to find insects to eat. Pigeons use magnetic fields to navigate flight. Bloodhounds pick up on smells that we could never sniff. And like the animals, we too need a super sense to see beyond the tangible world around us and live in the spiritual world. Yancey writes this, he says, Perhaps the spiritual or unseen world requires an inbuilt set of correspondences activated only through some sort of spiritual quickening. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above, said Jesus. His words point to a different level of correspondence available only to a person spiritually alive. Like the animals, we need an extra sense. For there is a big chunk of this life that we'll miss out on if our only receptors are eyes and ears and brain. God's truth, His presence is revealed 
by His Spirit. This means that knowing God is different than taking up a new hobby or learning a new language or even meeting a new person. It's not a normal correspondence. It requires another sense, a superpower, if you will. If we want to know God and tune into His will, we have to go deeper. And the only way for you and I to do so is with the help of the Holy Spirit. As Paul says, it is the Spirit who searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. The famous musician Ray Charles, he suffered from glaucoma at an early age. His mom knew that he was going to lose his vision eventually, and so she tried to prepare Ray. There's a scene from the movie that depicts her efforts. At 10 years old, Ray walks into the house and he trips over a rocking chair. He falls on the floor in pain. He cries out for his mother's help. Well, at first she takes a step for him, but then she sort of realizes what awaits him, and that he needs to be prepared. And so she steps back to kind of leave it to him to figure out. The movie progresses, and at first Ray begins to hear noises and moves in their direction. But, it, but it's not exact. He senses a crackling in the fireplace, and so he reaches out his hand, and ooh, it's too hot. It sort of burns him, and he pulls it back. His mother, of course, is looking on the whole time, concerned for her son, but determined to let him learn these lessons. Over time, though, Ray's hearing becomes acute, so much so that the day comes when he hears a grasshopper chirp. He reaches down, and his hearing is so precise, he knows exactly where to grab it. He smiles and he puts up the grasshopper to his ear to hear it closely. Still watching her son, Ray's mom is amazed by his progress. In fact, she sort of gasps with joy. And that's when Ray says, I hear you, Mama. You're right there. Miss Charles tears up and says, yes, I am. And then she gives her blind son a big hug. And this is God the Father's attitude toward us. You see, He knows our limitations. He realizes that we're blind to the spiritual world around us. And in order to survive, we've got to develop another sense, a spiritual discernment. And even if it means us groping and sometimes falling on our face, despite the inherent dangers, God knows we need this deeper sense to relate to Jesus and serve Jesus and become useful for Jesus. And then when He finally sees us getting it, that we're growing more and more sensitive to His Spirit, He picks us up and He wraps us in His arms. You see, God is broadcasting amazing things, but you've got to be tuned into the right channel. God's stuff is conveyed by God's Spirit. This is what Paul continues to say in verse 11. He says, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. In other words, life is lived from the inside out. Appearances can deceive. Take a man, for instance. I mean, you can shave your head. You could change your appearance. You can shave your head. You could grow out a big beard, you can lose some weight, you can radically change the facade. But the real person is the spirit of that man, which is in him. I thought one of the most insightful comments about Bruce Jenner's gender change was actually written by Franklin Graham. 
In a Facebook post, Graham wrote this. In Vanity Fair's cover story, the author talks as if Bruce and his newly chosen identity of Caitlin are two separate people. Bruce's son, Bert, said, I have high hopes that Caitlin is a better person than Bruce. This article also says Jenner openly acknowledges mistakes made with his children as Bruce and expresses genuine regret. And then Franklin Graham writes, I have news for them. Changing the outside doesn't change the inside. No man-made modification can fix what's wrong with the heart. Only God can fix the human heart. The Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. This is what Paul tells us. Real change occurs below the surface, on a spiritual level. As Bruce Jenner proves, with enough money and with a twisted motivation, there's no limit to how you can alter the outer person. Yet the most radical cosmetic changes won't fix a broken and a confused heart. Here's man's problem. As verse 9 tells us, a normal human is blind and deaf and ignorant to God's wonders and wisdom. Thus, he or she will lean toward what can be seen or heard or learned. The tangible world is sort of our default mode. This is why the spiritual man has to lean inward and Godward in a spiritual direction. Real meaning, real fulfillment, real life will only be found on a deeper spiritual level. This is where we should set our sights. Where are you leaning? Are you leaning toward this outward world or are you leaning toward the, the spiritual level, the spiritual world that God has for us? You see, too many people become engrossed and obsessed with what's around them, with the material world. They don't take the time to ask, how can I tap into those spiritual things? You know, when I look out at you this morning, all I see is the outward man. I see your facial expressions. I see your body language. And it doesn't really tell me that much. I really have a hard time knowing if you're tracking with me or if you're 100 miles away. Mentally speaking, some of you probably already checked out. You're already eating lunch or playing golf or whatever. Only the spirit of man knows the mind of a man. That's what Paul says. And only the spirit of God knows the mind of God. And this is why if I really want to know God, I need to cultivate a friendship with the Holy Spirit. God's mysteries are hidden from the mighty, but they are available to you and me through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is what Paul tells us in verse 12. He says, now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Now notice there is a spirit of the world in contrast to the spirit from God. Now, 1 John chapter 2 identifies the spirit of this world. It says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. 
But here's what's passing away. I mean, what's superficial, what's temporary, and not of the Father. He outlines it for us. The lust of the flesh. A fixation on physical pleasure. This is not from God. The lust of the eyes. A fixation on outward appearance or outward beauty. The pride of life. A fixation on what's here and now. These are the things that make up the spirit of this world. This is how the world rolls, you could say. It's a mindset that gets created where life is all about feeling great and looking great and being great. But this is not of God. This isn't the spirit that God has given us. And it shouldn't be what's steering us. Yes, physical pleasure and outward beauty in the here and now aren't always evil. They're not evil things, but neither should we make them ultimate things. And when they become ultimate things, then they distract us from our true goal. When they become ultimate in our lives, then we're following a different spirit. You remember when Jesus taught Nicodemus about the new birth, he said this, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then he added, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell from where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You know, it interests me that Jesus compared the Spirit with the wind. Whether it's the Spirit of this world, or whether it's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit blows like the wind. We're all influenced by the wind, are we not? Walk out those doors on a windy day we'll be influenced. And we're all influenced by spiritual forces, either godly or worldly. Ultimately, the Spirit is what has sway over men's hearts. We're motivated by the Spirit, whatever spirit we happen to yield to. You know, every, golf, every golfer knows that the wind is the X factor in a round of golf. With a strong wind in your face, a shot you'd normally hit with a pitching wedge becomes a seven iron. Or a wind at your back turns a fairway wood into a five iron. The wind is a huge factor. It dictates the game you'll play. And so it is with the Spirit. When the Spirit of this world is in your face, temptation becomes stronger, lust swells up inside, a fiery temper becomes more combustible. But man, when you're in the wind of the Holy Spirit, when the wind of the Holy Spirit is at your back, your aim gets straighter. Your shot is stronger, your touch is softer, your distance is longer. See, it's all about the wind that's blowing or the spirit that you have received. Are you part of the spirit of this world or are you flowing with the spirit of God? Paul tells us that we've received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God. And then he says in verse 13, For these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Man's wisdom teaches us certain lessons. It does. It educates us. But the education is basic and minimal. It can't teach us God's wisdom. Only God's Spirit can teach us spiritual things. Think of life this way. The Christian life is sort of like joint enrollment. You know, there are kids who take college classes even while they're still in high school. I wasn't one of them, but there's some kids that, that do that. 
But think of your life this way. The world we live in is high school. And we're all working on our diplomas, all right? We live and love and marry and raise our kids and work and die. And hopefully we find Christ along the way. We graduate to heaven. We get our diploma. But all the while, we've been in joint enrollment. Yes, we've been getting that high school diploma and we've been living out our lives. But we've also had the opportunity throughout our lives to be racking up some college credits. We've had the opportunity to be learning about the next life. See, you can take advanced classes that count for both. And this is what Paul says about the Christian life. It's joint enrollment. How sad to just go through life. And all you're working on is your diploma when all the while you could be taking some higher education. You know, if a student takes the same amount of classes and goes through the same, very same lessons and fails to get credit for any higher education, that's a sad thing. And yet this happens when you get caught up in the world. When your emphasis is just, by, is just getting by, just making a buck, just living day to day. When that's all you're worried about, you're not tapping into higher spiritual realities. Hey, the Bible says that it rains on the just and the unjust. That, that means that whether you're a Christian or not, you're going to go through some trials and some tough times. Why not receive from the Spirit in the process and let Him teach you higher lessons and transform you into the image of Christ by those trials? In the end, you won't just graduate from this life, but you'll also have some higher credits. Paul encourages us to let the Holy Spirit be our teacher. But here's where our assumptions betray us. For when I say, let the Holy Spirit be your teacher, what comes to mind? Well, you probably immediately put yourself in some classroom and you imagine a teacher up front, students open your books to page 343. As if that's the way the Holy Spirit teaches us spiritual things. Not so. Here's a better picture. Say the subject you want to study is the country of Aruba. Now you could open your book and you could memorize the state bird and the form of the Aruban government and its population, etc., etc., etc. Boring. There's another way you could learn about Aruba. You could fly there. And you could step off the plane into a tropical paradise. And you could start exploring the island and all its people. Which would you rather do? Well, the latter method is how the Holy Spirit teaches us about spiritual things. Here's how Paul puts it. The Spirit teaches us by comparing spiritual things with spiritual when you immerse yourself in the things of God, you become privy to a wide array of fresh input. A new world opens up to you. Everything about your life changes when you surrender to God. It's like getting off the plane in a tropical paradise. If you land in Aruba, I hope the first thing you wouldn't do is to read a travel guide. Surely you'd want to get some sand between your toes. Find you a nice palm tree to sit under and Drink some coconut milk. You'd start taking in all that's available. You'd talk to a native and ask some questions. You would begin to compare Aruban things with Aruba. And this is how the Holy Spirit teaches us. Our new life in Christ doesn't begin by scrutinizing or analyzing, but by actualizing, by living out our faith. 
It's when you experience His love and goodness and grace. It's when you sit under His holiness. It's when you feel His warmth and power in your life. When you let His goodness drive away your worries and fears, then you're beginning to compare spiritual things with spiritual. Here's a few suggestions for you. Compare what God says about you with how you see yourself. That's a good comparison. Sometimes I get down on myself, but God loves me. And He has forgiven me. And there is no condemnation in Christ. That's a good comparison. Hey, compare the things that are pure and noble and loving and of good report with all the trash that once dominated your thinking and stunk up your life. Revel and rejoice in the changes Jesus is working in you. That's a good comparison. Compare the littleness of your problems with the bigness of your God. That's a good comparison for you. That's how to grow. Compare your former fate with the hope you now have in Christ. Think of how much sweeter his life tastes and the bondage you've escaped. Imagine the glories of heaven in contrast to the torments of hell. Hey, make these comparisons and you begin to learn and grow and you become grateful. Here's a few more suggestions. Compare the promptings you receive with the priorities that you glean from Scripture. As you grow in Christ, the two will start to sink and fit together. Compare the guiding you sense from the Holy Spirit with the nature of Jesus. After all, God's Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit will always mimic the Master. Compare that still, small voice that you hear in your head with the Bible that you read and hold on your lap. Do they line up? Well, they will as you grow. It's the same author. The Holy Spirit never contradicts Himself. Compare what you're sensing spiritually with the gifts and callings God has placed on your life. Do they harmonize? Over time, God brings them together. See, here's my point. We learn to recognize the subjective promptings of the Holy Spirit by comparing them with the objective teachings of God's Word. Again, it's comparing spiritual things with spiritual that we grow. Whatever you receive from the Holy Spirit will always match the written word, the Bible, and the living word, Jesus. And if it doesn't, throw it out. But keep learning, keep growing, keep comparing. Seek to live in God's presence, be guided by the Holy Spirit, and do this. Dare to act on His promptings, for as you do, you'll be comparing spiritual things with spiritual, and you'll be growing. Several years ago now, I woke up one morning and I felt the urge to pray for my pregnant daughter-in-law, Dana. Since the girl never, ever answers her cell phone, I texted her. And I assured her that I was praying for her. Later, that very same day, her blood pressure spiked and she got admitted into the hospital. And I don't think it was just a coincidence that I had been urged to pray for her. I believe the Holy Spirit prompted me to pray, and He's done that many times since. The Spirit's job is to communicate with us. But are we sensitive? Are we listening for the deep things of God? One of the tremendous thrills of the Christian life is to be on the receiving end of a divine communique. At first, you're scared. I, I mean, you, you actually feel a little foolish acting on something that's just strictly spiritual. You're not completely sure it's from the Lord. But then you step out in faith and you see God's hand at work. 
this is what turns a normal life into a superhero adventure. In May 2002, U.S. News ran an article entitled, Faith in America. A question was posed to American citizens claiming to be Christians. They were asked, how often would you say you have experienced God's presence or a spiritual force that felt very close to you? Here were the results. 10% said never. These are people who are supposed to be Christians. 17% once or twice in their life. 23% said several times. And only 49% many times. But that means only half of Christians are opting for joint enrollment. Oh, we're all going through the hardships. But because of either fear or doubt, every other one of us are leaving some credits on the table. We're not learning the lessons God has for us. What a waste. If you've been born again as a child of God, you have received the Holy Spirit. This means it's time for you to start comparing spiritual things with spiritual. For verse 14 reminds us, For the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. Because they are spiritually discerned. Not everyone has the opportunity and the privilege of being led by the Holy Spirit. You see, rather than live a three-dimensional life, the natural man exists on a single plane. You know, his existence is flat. He lacks access to a whole dimension, to the spiritual realm around him. And from here on, into chapter 3, Paul is going to discuss the predicament and plight of these three men. Mr. Natural, Mr. Spiritual, and Mr. Carnal. Now, we're not going to meet Mr. Carnal until next time. But here Paul speaks of Mr. Natural and Mr. Spiritual. And the natural man is just that. He has no supernatural power. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And thus, the things of God are foolishness to him. He lacks spiritual discernment. Mr. Natural's only input is from the material, physical, temporal world around him. So that's why he looks to pleasure and satisfaction for meaning in life. And it only destines him for disappointment. He's lacking that relationship with God. As a matter of fact, Mr. Natural doesn't just lack God's wisdom. His problem is more difficult than just a natural blindness. He's hostile. He's antagonistic to the wisdom of God. Notice here he considers it to be foolishness. See, the natural man, he doesn't know God nor the things of God, and even the things of God are foolish to him. This puts him in a difficult situation. And this is why I scratch my head over churches who make it their goal to meet the felt needs of the people in their church. Don't they realize that people don't even know what they need? That until they receive the Spirit of God? When you preach sermons all about what God can do for you? Oh, become a Christian. Here's how God will make your life better. Well, sure, God will make your life better. But but you're approaching life from the wrong direction. For our goal is to give God glory. Not for God to make us better. But for us to give Him glory and make Him look better. You know, God is not a tool in our toolbox. He's not a means to an end. He's the end in and of Himself. The Bible says we were created for 
God's glory, and it's in giving glory to God that we find our fulfillment. Whereas the natural man, he sees life self-centeredly. Oh, give me a better life. Give me an easier life. See, again, the natural man doesn't even know what he really needs until he comes to God. He's blind and deaf to God's diagnosis. You know, bring up his sin and his need for repentance, his pride and his need for humility, his independent streak and his need to trust God, and he'll consider you foolish. The natural person doesn't know what his or her real needs are until he has been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, which causes a misconception. You know, sometimes the skeptics talk about the Christian life as being restrictive and limiting. Oh, look at all you're giving up to be a Christian. But here it's the natural man who lives a limited life. He lacks access to a whole segment of life. Imagine spending your entire lifetime and never tapping into the real world for which you were truly made to enjoy. I mean, it's like living in Lilburn, Georgia, and, and living here and dying here and never visiting Stone Mountain Park. You'd look pretty silly, wouldn't you? People would scoff. I mean, you lived your whole life next to an incredible place and you never bothered to check it out? What a wasted opportunity. And yet, this is the natural man who chooses to live a partial life at best. All he experiences is what he can see. And he ignores the Spirit of God and the treasures and blessings and wisdom and power that God has for us. It's Mr. and Ms. Spiritual who grab for all the gusto. Verse 15 tells us, But he who is spiritual judges all things. So here's the man who lives the rich, deep, complete life. The man who's known God's wisdom and God's power and God's blessing departs this world with no regrets. His bucket list is before him, not behind him. He realizes that the greatest pleasures are still to come. That this life has been merely a foretaste, a teaser, just a preparation for the true prize. He's judged all things and has proven what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And yet, Paul says, he himself is rightly judged by no one. And see, here's another problem that you and I will face. Mr. Spiritual, he navigates a course to stars that no one else sees. His fixed points aren't on the world's map. His bearings aren't available to Mr. Natural. So inevitably, he or she is going to be doubted and misconstrued. Hey, this is why it's frustrating to pour out your heart and share what God is doing in your life with a lost friend or with an unsaved spouse. I mean, have you ever tried this? I mean, you're pouring out your heart. You're sharing what's going on deep inside you, expecting some kind of empathetic response, and all you get is just kind of blank stare. You realize, it just just didn't compute. The problem is that that person you were talking to wasn't privy to the information that you had, the experiences that you have. Inevitably, this is why this world will persecute the church. For Mr. Natural doesn't understand Mr. Spiritual. And he becomes either afraid of what he doesn't know or jealous of what he doesn't have. Either way, the natural man misjudges the people who are spiritual. Remember, the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. This means that those who grasp God's wisdom will be seen by those who don't as silly and as ignorant. 
Oh, in the days ahead, expect this kind of opposition to grow in intensity, not to weaken. The prophets of old foresaw the world of today, a world that calls evil good and good evil, that misinterprets our love for hate. Recently, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, he spoke at a banquet in Baton Rouge. Here's a quote. God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools, and he has not been disappointed. If I have brought any message today, it is this. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ. And have the courage to suffer the contempt of this sophisticated world. Paul warned those who are spiritual to expect scorn and ridicule from this world. We will be rightly judged by no one. And then Paul wraps up his thoughts here in verse 16 by quoting from Isaiah 40, but with a twist. He says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Now, in Isaiah, this question is asked in anticipation of a negative response. In essence, he's saying, who are you kidding? No one has God's mind. No one instructs the Lord. No one's on the same thought level as God. God is sovereign. He needs nothing. In fact, Isaiah 40 goes on to say that to, the, uh, to God, the nations of this earth are like a drop in the bucket and is counted as the small dust on the scales. Yet here Paul dares to diverge from Isaiah's tone. For rather than paint God into some ivory tower where he's alone and he's unapproachable in his wisdom, no, Paul says just the opposite. He says, but we have the mind of Christ. He says, something has happened to us that was unheard of in the Old Testament. God is now networking with a group of people down here on earth. God is now sharing files with some people that are called the church. He has given us access to His thoughts and His ways and His will, unheard of in the Old Testament. The Phillips translation renders verse 16, We who are spiritual have the very thoughts of Christ. God has sent His Holy Spirit to make privy to us His wisdom. I'm telling you, friends, this is an incredible truth. We have the mind of Christ. Now, when you hear that, first notice the obvious. We have a mind. <laughs> have a mind. Don't think being spiritual means turning off your brain and going into some trance as if the Holy Spirit is, is some kind of a workaround for our intellect. That's, that's not what he's saying. No, the Spirit comes and enlightens our intellect. God is not against us thinking and using our brains, but He anoints our thoughts with His wisdom and His insight and His intuition and His understanding. The Holy Spirit ramps up our thinking to new heights. What an amazing blessing to have the mind of Christ. Think about it. While on earth, there was no question Jesus couldn't answer. There was no problem He couldn't solve. He always had the right word the perfect reaction for every situation. And now we have access to His wisdom through the conveyance of the Holy Spirit. I want to close with another quote by Philip Yancey. He says this, No other religion 
makes such an extravagant claim that the God of the universe exists not just as an external power whom we must obey, but as the one who lives inside us, transforming from the inside out and opening a channel of direct correspondence with God. This is the uniqueness of the Christian faith. That the Holy Spirit is a superpower reserved only for the Christian. God's Spirit enables us to live a heroic life. Oh, Mr. Natural, he has a mind of his own. See where that gets him. But Mr. Spiritual has the mind of Christ. And can you imagine a greater blessing?